Welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. This episode features a conversation that I had with composer Zachary Wadsworth and singer Tony Boutet. During the 56th Annual Contemporary Music Festival on the campus of Sam Houston State University, where Tony and I are on faculty. Composer Zachary Wadsworth writes music that is vivid, sometimes an evocative mixture of old and new. His music has been performed around the world by groups including the Boston Metro Opera, the Tokyo Cantat, and the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. With recent publications by Novello, G. Shermer, and E. C. Shermer, and airings on NPR's Performance Today, his music has been widely broadcasted and distributed. Recordings are available on Gothic Records, Albany Records, and Innova. Tenor Tony Boutet has established himself as a first-rate singer of many styles, including opera, art song, oratorio, and chamber music, from the Baroque era to the music of our time. Tony is also the artistic director of New American Voices, an initiative created to champion and perform new American works for voice through the collaboration of singer and composer. And it is that project, which was a featured component of our Contemporary Music Festival, that brought us together for this conversation. Here with Zachary Wadsworth and Tony Boutet. Thank you both for being here. Really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so let's start with Zachary uh, and getting your uh, some of your background uh, Feel free to kind of take us back wherever you like, but what I always like to talk about in the podcast is sort of the origins, you know, your origin story <laughs> as a composer. How did you get started in, in writing music and, and why? And mm-hmm. take us wh- wherever you'd like. Yeah, now I, I started writing, high, uh, writing music in high school. Uh, I was taking piano lessons and really loved this new age pianist named Jim Brickman. I don't know if you've ever heard. This mm-hmm. is very 1990s, very... Um, very feel good, very uh, very new age piano music, and um, I started writing. I think my first piece was called Tide, uh, but not like the detergent. Um, but um, uh, and it was just this D minor solo piano piece. Anyway, I, so I started writing that way, and uh, my my piano teacher That's at the time hilarious. had a very helpful rule, and her rule was just that whatever I composed, I had to write down. Um, that was the only rule I couldn't improvise or couldn't you know just uh, play the piece from memory, um, which I think was a really good first step. Uh, and then I was uh, listening to a lot of music. I was watching a lot of PBS documentaries, things about Bernstein, about Mahler. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a radio series called American Mavericks um, that yeah. with Michael Tilson Thomas yes. at the time. So this was a, a big formative way for me to hear a lot of music that I really enjoyed. And so then I uh, started writing music that was more imitative, I would say, of Mahler, um, sort of if Mahler had written um, a lengthy, uh, mediocre string quartet. I think that, that was <laughs> where I would have uh, uh, that, yeah, fallen in my high school years. But that string quartet got me into Tanglewood, uh, the, the high school summer program at Tanglewood, and that's really where I, I kind of had my first experiences meeting other uh, people my age who were composing music also, and then... Uh, um, listening to a lot of repertoire, of course, going to the Contemporary Music Festival and wow. hearing Grise for the first time and wow. Berio for the first time and also just going to a bunch of Boston Symphony concerts. Yeah. So that was a really formative summer and then from there went on to, to studying uh, composition at, at Eastman for, for my undergrad um, up in Rochester, New York. Yeah. Who, was your, who was your teacher there? Uh, they cycle you through at Eastman every year, which I think is actually great for composition instruction because then you're not tempted to become a perfect mm-hmm. clone of anyone. Um, so I studied with a, a bunch of people, David Liptak, Robert Morris, Carlos Sanchez Gutierrez, Roberto Zon Muldoon. Um, uh, and so we, uh, yeah, we went cycled through a bunch of different teachers That's there. That's cool. Yeah, great. So uh, of, of those teachers that you had at Eastman, mm-hmm. was there in, any one of them that, that imparted some gem of uh, wisdom that you, you know, that really changed your course or provided you with direction into yes. where you would end up now um, yeah. in your career? Yes, ab- absolutely. <clears throat> and I, I mean, uh, anyone who teaches composition, I think we all we all think ourselves total imposters. And now, now that I teach composition, I see this uh, in myself that I really only hope to have these kind of 
moment gem moments with students that you point to here and one really memorable one was uh, I was studying with Robert Morris he's uh, his own music focuses a lot on uh, on very very well organized serial techniques um, and my music really doesn't do that um, and so I wasn't sure going into the semester how that was going to be studying with someone who I felt really musically different from um, it was amazing I mean he took every piece of mine from what he thought it was trying to do and and I tried to help however he could. And I remember I came in to one of the first lessons with Robert Morris, and I had been listening to a lot of Steve Reich that summer. Um, and, and I just had this crisis. I sort of thought, like, I love Steve Reich, and why can't I be Steve Reich? Like, why can't I write music that has that minimalist sound? Why, why when I try, does it sound wrong? Uh, and I just remember he kind of leaned in, and he said, do you like dogs? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, do you want to be a dog? <laughs> and to me, that it just, it was yes. perfect. It just settled, right? It just settled the moment. It, 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 you don't have to be what you like. And as musicians, I, I think that's so valuable that we don't always have to emulate what we enjoy and that we can have broad interests even as composers yeah. and only focus on what we're interested in when it actually comes to composing. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a great lesson. It sort of reminds me a little bit of, uh, and we probably all have these figures in our lives, but uh, some big influence. Uh, I, I was trained as uh, classically as a performer, as a percussionist. You know, I studied composition uh, in my doctorate. You know, that's what kind of where I got interested in it. Mm. But mostly my training was hands-on as a percussionist, mm. playing repertoire, you know, working on technique, working with composers. But uh, as I became a composer, uh, and, and sort of had this inkling that that was something that I wanted to do, uh, the shadow of John Cage. Mm. So for me, it was Cage. Mm -hmm. You know, for you, it was Steve Reich. Mm -hmm. For me, it was John Cage, and that shadow just hung over everything that I did, mm. and it was hard to kind of escape that mm -hmm. a little bit because I just had such reverence and, and interest and respect for what he had done mm -hmm. and the kinds of things that he had done for, for my... Uh, instrument for percussion and so I, I was in that shadow for a long time mm. and so I think I think it's interesting to at some point I think we all have to confront that as mm -hmm. creative people like mm -hmm. our, our big influence or our our musical heroes or whatever that is and, and come to some kind of terms that that you know I like the dog yeah I shouldn't become the dog <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's, right. that's a great way of saying that yeah that's, that's great right well it's like if I love a singer um, my favorite singer when I was um, just starting in college, well, my master's degree was Jan de Gaetani, who was a teacher at Eastman, and she did a lot of contemporary music, and I was like, if I could be anybody, I would be Jan de Gaetani, mm -hmm. but I can't, so I can emulate her as much as possible, but it's still going to be my voice, and I think even if you do try and copy someone, your voice is still there, no matter how much, you know, copying there is going on, and hopefully yeah. you find that individuality and then start to yeah. Nurture it. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's that's true with all influences. It, you know, once you can get out of the shadow of it, then then taking it. Um, you know, there's this great writer, Austin Kleon. I don't know if you guys know mm -hmm. his work, but he's he sort of writes about creativity and uh, his. There's a book called uh, Steal Like an Artist, and mm -hmm. where he talks about you know, uh, sort of the intake of art and information. But anyway. I'm, off track now, but <laughs> it's it's just a, it's an interesting concept. So this maybe is a good point to pivot. Uh, Zachary, let's talk a little bit about uh, vocal music and your interest in the voice and writing for the voice. Um, I noted when I when I looked through your catalog of works, a lot of songs, uh, sacred music, all kinds of uh, vocal genres and forms. Um, and the thing that I noticed is that while a lot of the music does sound modern. Um, some of the music sounds like it could have been written in a different time, a different place uh, in the past. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how you approach vocal music, your interest in older forms and genres, uh, anything you want uh, about that topic. Yeah, yeah, it, and it's a huge topic it, it, and a really insightful question, I think. the uh, My interest in vocal music stems in part just from my experiences as a singer, that in school I was singing in choirs and I was spending time socially with a lot of uh, voice majors uh, mm. in, mm. <laughs> you yeah, know, uh, bad influence. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but in so many ways, uh, what we all do in music school is build our own communities that then stay with us for life. And, and um, 
through spending time with singers, I learned more and more about what they're interested in, and I also learned about what ch what they find challenging, what they find rewarding in, in their music making. And um, I started then experimenting with writing songs and choral music uh, in undergraduate, or in my undergraduate. And then it really, um, it was like one piece led to another. Once you've established yourself uh, as someone who writes vocal music, that actually well, you know, I might say, <laughs> <laughs> well, that be, that's a, not the largest list of people mm -hmm. um, because I think a lot of composers um, can be spooked, especially by choral music and especially by sacred choral music, which um, I think ventures into territory where a lot of composers don't wish to go. Um, you realize actually this is a niche, and it's it's been really a productive one for me. Um, but it's also one that demands that you take considerations of performance and of performance challenge into the very fabric of your own composition. So I find, especially if I'm writing a choral piece for amateurs to sing, well, how do I how do I try to find a space of creativity, um, if not innovation, but creativity and exploration, where then amateur voices can still feel rewarded in singing that piece. It's a it's a challenge that all composers who write, especially choral music, confront. Um, and and I've confronted the question, uh, well, the question of innovation in a bunch of different ways. I think. First and foremost, I was never someone who was writing the absolute most experimental things. And I found that when I did, it often sounded more kind of performative and fake. Um, and so I thought, well, what is genuine f for me? And what is the kind of exploration that I wish to undertake in my music? Um, and there, I, I really started thinking about the things that my composition education didn't emphasize. We're very good at talking about music and especially kind of what we call in scare quotes Western classical music as this kind of unbroken line of uh, forward moving scientific progress, mm -hmm. right? Like Beethoven discovered chords that Bach didn't know about and then, you know, Wagner discovered chords that Beethoven didn't know about and it's this, this very linear narrative about progress and scientific uh, discovery in music. And so then I found if I tried to confront and approach composition as, okay, well, what's my discovery going to be and where will this lead me? Um, that really shut down my ability to uh, find my own expression and, and interact even with performers. And so uh, my approach very much was then looking to what I could control. Um, I'm very interested in the expressive possibility of genre. Um, and of style, so that how can I as a composer point toward different musical traditions as an expressive tool? Can I shift between, um, for example, making reference in a choral piece to a kind of medieval or renaissance sound, shift th between that and a more 20th or 21st century choral sound as a way of actually um, creating expressive dissonance between those two styles? Um, and uh, that's something I'm very interested in, in vocal music in particular. Um, and so it's, it's been a process of discovery, and it's one that I'm still uh, very much in the middle of. But um, it's something that I've thought about a lot, especially now that I'm teaching students and trying to help them wade into these waters of uh, novelty uh, and experimentation um, without trying to kind of burden them with this weight of history thing that we sometimes do with our students, like, you shall inherit the great works, you know, and they are uh, yours to be anxious about. Well, no, I'm much more interested, actually, in what's expressive in the moment and in using the tools that, that work for my style and for the performers that I collaborate with. Yeah. I had a, a poet on the podcast um, a while back, Patrick Phillips, hmm. and a wonderful, wonderful poet. And one of the things that he said was um, that he... I'm drawing a sort of a parallel between what you were saying about the weight of history and mm -hmm. all of this stuff. And for him, uh, the way that he expressed it was uh, he hoped to be among the great American poets. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to be the great American <laughs> poet or, mm -hmm. or maybe, uh, you know, so sharing that sort of idea to be among great composers is maybe a, a, a worthy goal rather mm -hmm. than to be the innovating tip of the spear, you know, That's right. uh, but to, to, to aspire to be among that group. Right. That, that seems like, and yeah. I, I think sort of also just humanizing the, these composers also, I think that's one of the things that I find with, with students who, you know, because I'm, uh, I'm interacting with my students on the level of, um, as an applied 
teacher of an instrument, mm-hmm. not a, not as a composition teacher. And um, the thing that is helpful for them is to realize that composers are people too. You know, <laughs> Beethoven was a, a guy that had problems just like any person. You know, um, and uh, that somehow putting putting students in touch with the kind of humanity of that is also, I don't know, an important thing. I don't know if you mm-hmm. have thought about that at all, but mm-hmm. um, absolutely. Well, and I also think. I also think breaking breaking away from narratives about high and low can also help us um, help us to take away the the barriers to entry, right? Because uh, well, this this semester at Williams, I had my students write a song um, as their first project, and I mistakenly for at first said art song, and that really spooked them. It was very interesting. We can talk about this. Yeah, we'll get Absolutely. into that yeah. for sure. But um, the words we use, right, and and their connotations about high and low can actually really get in the yeah. way, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. of the creative process, where really what goes on in what we might call popular song, again in scare quotes, and then art song in scare quotes, structurally are not so different. Timbrely, maybe there are differences, but I think we do damage to our field by engaging in this kind of marble bust um, uh, creation of... Um, of icons of untouchable genius, right? right. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe that's a good point to talk about art song. We could come back to sort of mm-hmm. more technical uh, things about writing for the voice and choosing text, that type of thing. But mm-hmm. maybe this is a good pivot point to talk about art song as a concept. And this might be a good time to introduce uh, Tony into the conversation <laughs> in a, a more active uh, role. But uh, I, I was reflecting as I was preparing some, you know, uh, talking points for our. Uh, chat today that um, last night at the New American Voices concert with our faculty composers and collaborators, uh, one of uh, our colleagues here, Brian Harrington, a terrific composer, spoke last night about how, you know, the the flourishing of art song in the 19th century was this kind of inevitability because of all of the romantic poets and writers generating uh, this, you know, just the wealth of of text and materials that then composers couldn't help but pay attention to that, and, and then you get an explosion of this kind of repertoire, art song, and, and all of the socio-political uh, uh, things surrounding uh, music of that, that kind. Um, but one of the things that, Tony, that I would ask, and, and for both of you, is is to talk a little bit about the genre of art song, define what, what that means to you, and why it's relevant today, or how it could be more relevant moving forward. Hmm. Well, I always think it goes way back. Um, uh, I sing a lot of Baroque music, and um, in that time, chamber music was mostly for the royals, um, and art song is basically chamber music. Um, but then when things started to level out, and the, the, the royalty weren't doing as much roiling, and the, the middle class was rising, people were able to own, the own, own their own instruments and start playing uh, music in their own houses, and then um, chamber music became a harpsichord and a cello and a singer, and, and but with the invention of the piano, I think that's when people could have pianos in their homes and or their salons, their parlors, um, and these kind of intimate experiences became um, more um, readily available, you know, just, just and more popular because that's when publishing started to happen and more, at least more. So you know, that's what I talk about the rise of the art song. I, I guess people think it starts, you know, the beginning of the 19th century, but for me, it kind of is just a trail of innovations and stuff all along the way. Um, So for me, I guess um, the reason I started this project is um, kind of to take us back to that kind of intimate experience um, and to also um, bring in the creativity aspect of it Um, as far as connecting the singer with the composer. I guess we'll get into that a little bit more. But as far as the first art song I ever sang, I can think back to a French song by Georges U, <laughs> which one of my students right now, uh, Christian Cruz, is singing um, on his jury this, this semester. Uh, and it's based on a text um, by Heine, which um, Schumann also wrote, uh, um, composed for Dichelieber. Um, I wept in my dreams, basically. Um, and then you're hooked on that. And then from there, you know, for, for me, I grew up a gospel, pop gospel singer. I was writing pop gospel songs when I was in college, and it wasn't until I got to university that I um, realized this whole art song, and I guess we'll go back to, in quotes, art yeah. song idea yeah. again. Mm-hmm. 
but that's you know, basically my background with with classical music is is a meandering uh, as a meandering path path through um, pop gospel music um, um, improvisation I learned piano by by ear basically before I took piano so um, for me it all grows out of that need for uh, improvisation which you can, well I'm, I'm meandering a little bit but what I'm getting to is the fact that um, even though I sing these art songs, I want to have some sort of input, and that brings me to the the New American Voices um, idea. This this project, the New American Voices. So, Zachary, I'd be curious to hear from you about um, since you brought up the idea of you know introducing this genre to students and sort of their reaction to that. Um, uh, how, so, how did you handle that, and 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 how did you make this form uh, this historic form? relevant to your students and, and for you in your own work? How do you make it relevant for in your own creative? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, at first, I mean, it was it was a convenient thing to write. I'm also a pianist and could accompany my singer friends in, in uh, their singing of the songs and also had friends, uh, yeah, just friends who could easily put together this kind of performance. And it was also a way to, um, as a composer, turn over some of the control um, over form and structure mm -hmm. and meaning to a very talented poet. And so by bringing in words, actually, it became a beautiful kind of source of creativity. Then there wasn't this kind of um, Microsoft Word cursor flashing problem of like the empty document, right? Uh, beginning a, a composition with a text, you have an in already, right? Um, and then your job as a composer becomes uh, one that feels less isolated, less lonely in a way. You're interacting even with a poet who's long dead, but with their work, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that, uh, I think, really jumped out at me. And I also see in my students that really helps them um, explore their own uh, compositional ability in a way that feels less arbitrary, right? Well, I guess E-sharp next or something like that. <laughs> um, we can always tie it to a specific moment, word, emotion, yeah. things like that. Um, and so... the. Uh, with respect to the question of how do we make contemporary art song relevant, well, I mean, how do how do we make any song relevant in any genre, right? What um, I, I think uh, we can view it in a few different ways, and and one of the ways that a lot of my composition teachers again encouraged was to explore different ideas about pitch and organization. We see this in the art songs of like Wolfgang Riem and other uh, experimental avant-garde composers yeah. now. Yeah, I know. Um, and you get some really, really wild stuff. I'm also very interested in just the idea of, of broadening uh, the possible topics and areas of exploration within art song, right? That it doesn't always have to be the, the, um, the maiden under the linden tree kind of aesthetic, right? Unless you want it to be that. So um, I'm curious what kind of text your students chose right. and how you guided them to. Right, I, I wanted them to find all sorts of different texts. I mean, this is something I've, I've been doing in my, a song cycle I wrote now about a year and a half ago. It was entirely early kind of gay love poetry from, from the US, Edward Carpenter. Um, these poems that are exploring these, uh, what we might call romantic um, themes of love and loss and um, nature, but all reflected through a, a subtly different voice, a voice that was kind of erased uh, uh, from its own time or not allowed to speak in its own time. Those, so I called that secret songs, just this idea that um, we can actually broaden a genre by broadening the number of voices who are welcome within it. Um, but also uh, with my students then, um, uh, yeah, th they came up with great things. One of them found, one of them found a, a WikiHow article. Um, WikiHow, this website that tells you uh, clear instructions as to how to do straightforward things. But although one of the articles is how to write a symphony and it has all the steps <laughs> laid out with oh, helpful good. pictures. Um, but he did how, how to avoid catching the flu in winter and set the text yeah. of that as an art song, um, which I thought was so much fun. And actually, the, and the song is, is really energetic and fun and relatable and funny. Um, and, and, and I love that kind of thing. Another student took a bit of text and fed it through a translation app mm. uh, to have the text gradually kind of fall <coughs> apart every strophe as it was repeated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that kind of thing, I think, is just a really creative way of approaching the genre that doesn't that doesn't rely solely on like, oh, I'm going to use a, mi a major seventh because mm -hmm. it sounds weird. Well, we'll get to that too as far as the stuff we've collaborated on because mm -hmm. there have been a few interesting texts that we've landed mm -hmm. on that are non-traditional. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. For um, the original New American Voices year, which was 2014, 
um, we did a competition at the university where I was teaching, and um, I actually wrote the poetry for it. Um, I'm not a poet, but I got inspired at some point, and a lot of people won't be surprised to know that it was about cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wrote uh, basically a poem for, for every cat in my life up to that point, which was about six of them. <laughs> and they were, um, they ended up being comical and, and poignant and really, really, truly meaningful to personal, me. Personal, personal, yeah. Yeah, and, and so what I did was I, I offered those texts and said to the, to the composition students, and I said, here's six texts. Um, choose whichever one you want, write a song about it, um, and we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, pick a, we'll pick the best one at the end of the year and we'll, we'll award a prize. Mm. And that was basically the first year that I kind of engendered this idea of, 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 of singer-composition um, collaboration, but it was also, I guess, in, in a real sense, writer-singer. Okay. So mm. I really felt like I had a huge creative input into those songs, and that was one of the most rewarding experiences for me. And another reason why I like to try and connect so people can mm -hmm. experience that. I feel like I'm proselytizing when I talk about this because it's a feeling that is just so powerful for me to, to encourage this kind of collaboration. And you, uh, John, you do a lot of collaborative work and uh, with writers and, and singers and, and, and ensembles. And yeah, I, I, I found it was sort of interesting to hear, Zachary, hear you talk about um, you know, working with text as a way to sort of enter in and <laughs> also something that you said earlier was, you know, in early on feeling like an imposter or even as a composition professor feeling like an imposter. And sometimes I, I admit that I feel that for myself, uh, that I feel a little bit like an imposter, you know, when mm -hmm. I when I write a, a new piece, I, you know, um, it, it comes back to that whole being in the shadow of the great, you know, composers <coughs> and this whole thing. But but with regard to text, uh, I th you know, in my in my speaking from my own perspective, I've always been interested in poetry and writing and um, creative writing. And you know, I remember in high school I took a creative writing course and just being so excited about you know being able to find these really interesting texts and making things and just the joy of the creation of using words in interesting ways and. And then as, as I got into this whole emerging genre of speaking percussionist pieces, which I found in, in graduate school and, um, you know, sort of found, uh, again, oh, this is a chance that I can work with text again. And I got really excited about that and working with writers and so forth, you know, so forth and so on. But for me, it's it's really the um, uh, the fun in the the collaboration is is the fun part, exactly. you know. And uh, my my good friend Nick Lance, who's a just a terrific poet, uh, lucky to have made that connection. But you know, we've done a number of pieces now, and and, and it's great to be able to sit down and say, you know, what are we gonna, you know, scheme about what what the next thing is gonna be, and and what we want to talk about, what we're interested in, and and then for me as the composer, I, I totally agree. It's a it's a much easier place to start from. Uh, to have a text and uh, and you know and, well, and and it makes it like you said more personal. Um, that's why I feel lucky to be a singer. Yeah, um, I started off as an instrumentalist. I was a tuba major, <laughs> tuba and voice major as a flute minor, um, and then after I know it's kind of wacky, um, but after two years, I um, I was just veering off more into singing, and I thought, well, the voice is easier to carry than the tuba. Um, <laughs> I found out that's a little different, because having your voice with you all the time, it creates its own challenges, mm. but um, just the idea of having uh, your own personal voice that lives inside your body, um, and you have to sing words unless, you know, you're singing nonsense syllables, which mm -hmm. happens, yeah. Um, but yeah, you're automatically on a different not a higher communicative level, but a different communicative level yep. um, than an instrumentalist. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I always come back to John Cage, but Cage uh, has this famous quote from say, Cage: "If you want to say something, use words." So I totally agree. It's it's a different way of communicating, but it is uh, powerful because it's direct. You can actually say something. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Sounds have power, but words have a different kind of power. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Sounds have an abstract nature to mm -hmm. them, right? And, and, and words or, or vocal utterances mm -hmm. of all kinds have a, a more human, more direct meaning. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so it, let's pivot a little bit. And um, m we, we didn't really talk about 
setting texts and, mm. and sort of maybe we can get into a little bit from, from a composer's perspective about uh, the kinds of texts that you're interested in mm -hmm. and how you find poetry. I mean, poets are my heroes, so uh, I'd be curious to know. And, and Tony, please uh, chime in. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, either of you consider when, when selecting texts or you know, what you're looking for in, in uh, different maybe genres it would affect what what kinds of text you're choosing but mm -hmm. what makes a particular text a good candidate for a piece in mm. your opinion yeah it's a great question I, I, um, because I write a lot of solo vocal and ensemble vo vocal music so choral music and and songs um, I do have in, in my mind a very clear distinction on whether a, a text communicates a kind of communal identity or whether a text communicates a singular identity. Because I think songs, as we've already talked about, are so good at expressing the intimate. Mm -hmm. um, there is a real top limit on how loud and how apocalyptic and explosive a song can be. Um, and, and that's fine, because actually the most expressive moments in most art songs are these moments of absolute stillness mm -hmm. or, or, or um, quietness. And so um, I think, uh, I think for me, I'm always looking at, at, is there an individual in the text, um, as opposed to a kind of collective unit, um, which is why I almost never set for choirs a, a poem that uses the word I, for example. Try to find something that feels more collective for that kind of a scenario. But for a song, I'm always looking for a sense of the personal, um, and also then looking often for an emotional arc or trajectory that then suggests some kind of musical treatment. I mean, we were just talking about the difference between the kind of tangible meanings of text and the abstract meanings of sound. And I, I think song is where those two things come together in really beautiful ways. And some of the best songs, some of the songs that I love the most, I mean, Im Wunderschönen Monat Mai by Schumann is one of these, where the text has one very specific thing to say, and then the music has a way of actually sort of warring with... And pivoting, right. yes. And, and, and then the, that tension, which exists within one work, then actually brings you to such a more transformative place than just the music would or just the text would. That's what I'm really interested in, is finding texts that that can allow for that kind of treatment musically, where you can then say, oh, I can I can actually kind of twist that in that moment. But yeah. it's funny, so Tony, I mean, what, because we've worked together now on several cycles where you've come to me with texts and always really great and very different ideas. And so what, like, leaps out to you about some of the texts that you find for your composers to set? Well, I want to talk a little bit about the first time, my first time working with a composer, which, uh, and uh, Michael Alec Rose, uh, who's on the faculty of Vanderbilt University, hmm. who um, wrote the so first song cycle I ever, I ever sang. And I was not a very, I was intelligent, of course, but not very literate when I started grad school. And, um, there was a lot, a lot of, I, did, I didn't know about poetry, still don't, but Michael uh, and I, he was a comp composition major there, talked about um, collaborating on a song cycle, and he presented me with this anthology of poetry by Robert Bly called News of the Universe, and I highly recommend it to anybody who has not looked at it. Um, it kind of changed my life because it's, it's, um, it's, it's a huge volume that's very comprehensive, um, and we were able to, I was able to just read the whole thing and, and, and then sort of uh, focus in on a few poets like Mary Oliver and Rilke and Novalis. I can't remember exactly when he's from, but I know he's early-ish. Um, and um, some Sufi poetry. So what it, what it did, and the, and the po it's called News of the Universe, but it takes five disparate poems and, and weaves them into a kind of a narrative that li that ends with um, Rilke's poem, I Live My Life in Growing Orbits. Um, and it was a beautiful cycle. I, I, as I've said before, it was transformative experience for me to, to be that closely, um, um, closely tied to the creation of a project. Um, but now, um, just coming back to the future, coming back to the present, <laughs> back from the future, um, now 
I think my quirky quirkiness plays into almost everything I choose, and a lot of things we've we've talked about um, come from a, a sense of humor, a sense of poignancy, um, what catches me, like the text we, we, uh, we looked at, um, What to Do When Lost in the Woods, mm -hmm. was from a Boy Scout manual from the beginning of the 20th century, mm -hmm. uh, verbatim. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very, very sweet, unusual text. Um, yeah, sort of like the wiki how of the exactly, early 20th century. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, and an earlier thing that um, Zachary set was Cautionary Tales for Children, which that was your baby mm -hmm. originally. And then I, I said, well, why don't you write another one? And, and then another one. And then there were three. And then there was a cycle. Yeah, this, um, this set of kind of funny and funny poems that are meant to warn children, I think, uh, not to do things like slam doors or, or eat string by playing them out, eat string, right? By playing them out <laughs> to their worst possible conclusions where a child has knotted his insides with string or things like this. Yeah, I think I, I think we're both drawn to these kind of texts. Also, because um, I think composers have a natural inclination toward darker themes, and that well, I mean, I think that's inevitable. And singers do too, which sure. is which is I, you know, I, you'll hear some comp compositions later today, and for the most part, these young composers choose rich, dark texts, mm -hmm. and I remember feeling the same way. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think uh, later on in my life, we just try to find the humor and the poignancy yeah. in things. Yeah, uh, and you realize there's expressive space in joy and in kind of dark humor or in un uncomplicated humor. Yeah, I mean, I think I find where I find text now, of course, is the internet. Um, but uh, what I love about websites like archive.org mm -hmm. or uh, poetry.com or, or um, uh, the Gutenberg, um, yeah, yeah the, all of these things, uh, you can find some really odd mm. stuff, some yeah. really off the wall stuff, and and poets who aren't in all the anthologies either, the, the who aren't the Shakespeare's and aren't the uh, yes. um, the O'Hara's or any, you know, people who everyone uh, sets and, right, and, knows. and yep. sets and yeah. knows, right, and so I I've really enjoyed exploring the Amy Lowell's and Edward Carpenter's, these lesser-known American composers. And public uh, or domain poets, composers. Me. Right, public, public domain, domain Which helps. means you don't have to get permission <laughs> right, or that does, pay the rights. That does help, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, I've also found, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a few things that, that remind me of sort of found poetry, you know, uh, the wiki how thing. And uh, one of the techniques that uh, I learned from uh, Nick Lance, he, he has a few poems, uh, one, one were... Um, titles of spam emails you know mm. that he got and it's hilarious you yeah. know it's really funny and then the other one uh just just sort of as an aside was a technique that i then used for one of my pieces but th the interesting thing about this technique is that it sort of allowed me to talk about our cultural socio-political moment in a way that wasn't confrontational and that was this idea of using google autocomplete mm. so I, I wanted to write this piece about um truth for obvious reasons, and uh, so mm. I went to Google and I typed in the truth is, and then I got all these terrific choices, mm. and or the truth about, mm. or I would type in the truth is, and then the letter A or the letter B, and just, yep. you know, I generated all this text, so it was Google was writing the piece for me, mm -hmm. and then, you know, but I, I got this idea from Nick, you see he has uh, some Google autocomplete poetry that's, it's hysterical, mm. you know, it's really interesting. And that's when te but, technology starts to inform our Exactly, and so so it's just this interesting thing of um, a thing that we get to talk about r around this issue of, of composing pieces for the voice and, and finding texts and interesting things. It's it's sort of a, a fascinating part of this creative practice. It's is really how fun. You find it's them. so fun. I yeah. find, like you said, you can troll the internet for for poems. Or well, um, Gabriel Kahane wrote a piece called Craigslist Leader, which is based on <laughs> personal ads. Um, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's really brilliant. great. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Um, yeah. And I remember when I was living in, um, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, I found, I lived across from a, from a middle school and I, I found this piece of paper on the ground and I picked it up and it was actually a note that two girls had been passing back and forth from class. And it was cryptic and charming and body. And mm -hmm. it was like, I, I didn't have a composer there to write it, but uh, <laughs> it would have been, it's, it's perfect, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And perfect. I think what it does for audiences, it's it's a slice of real life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, or the autocomplete, we all know that. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, right. It, it, yeah. yeah. So I think as this progresses, it might be interesting to help these student composers learn how to maybe generate their own text. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think that, I mean, the audience question is also a really important thing to mention, that, that text 
engages an audience in a different way than, than, than music does and can bring them in and can also kind of um, soften the hard edges of something that they might have a hard time with otherwise if they feel it's like how, you know, uh, audiences might balk at Penderecki, but then they go to a horror movie and hear the exact same sounds and have a, a visceral reaction. Yeah, yeah, and they understand them because they're they're uh, they're anchored in meaning, in specific meaning, right? Um, but uh, so I think this uh, uh, the audience responds well to text, and and it also then you can kind of activate their understanding of the world that they live in, of the um, you know, because since Google. Uh, Autocorrect is also a reflection of the world itself and exactly. a reflection of everyone who uses Google. Yeah, right. And um, I, I wrote a piece last summer, uh, a, a duet um, for tenor and baritone called The Doctor. And it's just this kind of little scene about the contemporary healthcare system and, and you know, HMOs and PPOs and FSAs and HSAs and all of this. And, tr and it was meant to be kind of funny, um, but somehow meeting the audience in a place where they they understood and and could kind of empathize with the 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 um what's the word i'm looking for they could empathize with the kind of hilarious idiosyncrasy of the moment and also the um kind of waiting for godot style experiences that we all go through yes. uh, in a day by day way it, <laughs> they then connect with the music on a, in a different way and they're again willing to to go to more experimental musical places because yeah. of that, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think in the uh, just the last thing I'd say about this topic is that in that particular piece about truth that I have, you know, um, you have the option of 15 years from now, if you do that piece, you have the option of going to Google and replacing mm -hmm. some of the words mm -hmm. that are very reflective of right now. Mm -hmm. So when I typed in the truth about and the letter O, of course it gave me Obamacare. Mm. The truth about B was Benghazi, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, so and these things in 15 or 20 years, may, maybe they're in the conversation still, but m more likely there are other things that yeah. have so come up. You'll and definitely so have to put a date with whatever exactly. an exact date and time probably just right. so you, you know, you carbon date it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to uh, pivot now and make sure we talk about uh, the collaboration. Your collaboration uh, and we could do that via the piece we heard last night parlor songs well you were just talking about time and place and I think parlor songs is definitely rooted in a certain time and place and evolves from a certain time and place mm -hmm. and Zachary can maybe elaborate on the parlor culture or how is how <laughs> this if you know how this idea of parlor songs evolved yeah no it's a great uh, this this all came together really in a nice way for me and and uh, so Tony you emailed me and said I've got this idea for parlor songs and I sort of <laughs> even had to remind myself what exactly we're talking about well, when we talk about parlor songs and I songs. thought let's take some text from some parlor songs and maybe reset them yeah and yeah and and uh, I was at the time I was teaching a brand new class that I was just writing while teaching it at, at Williams College called um, music and the internet uh, and that class is all about the the ways that music has changed now that it's moved largely online the way that music distribution systems artist compensation models everything like this has changed so this sort of history of this change that we're still going through very much um, and because of that I was really thinking about format um, in, in the classroom I was thinking a lot about um, about you know old you know the 45 um, or the cassette tape or the CD, what all of these objects meant mm -hmm. to both music the and to the track. consumption. <laughs> right, the A track, of course. Um, and going back before that, um, of course, in, in that class, I was starting that conversation by talking about at-home music making. And um, that was just when you emailed me about these parlor songs um, and about this idea for the parlor songs. Which, which I have so to say, a couple of days later, I wrote back and said, I think that's pretty lame. I don't think we should do that. Yeah. <laughs> I was <laughs> having so second funny. thoughts about it. But I just love, I, it, it's, it's, I, I love the idea of this at-home music making that we have largely lost, right? We don't really sing together anymore at all. Because especially nowadays, we think, oh, well, I'm not a singer, so I shouldn't sing. When in, the, in oh. older times, people... Sang regardless, sing. right? Everybody sings. You sing, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, so I, th I think I was very interested in this idea of communal song and of writing a kind of time-traveling song cycle that deals with issues of nostalgia about at-home music making. So the interesting question for me in the cycle was how do I kind of musically paint the idea of going back in time and then hopping forward in time again, looking nostalgically back to the time of the piece. So anyway, they're speaking of Back to the Future. Um, uh, I, I wanted to 
explore th that idea in one pretty short song cycle. Um, and, and this was really the perfect venue for it. And so we talked a lot about quotation, what would we quote from actual parlor songs, and then um, we really pushed also to include uh, a poem by D.H. Lawrence called Piano that's all about nostalgia and all about the loss of, of um, this at-home music making where the poet reflects on, uh, on his mother having sung to him in the parlor as a child. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to, it, it just raised really interesting questions to me about loss and about time. Uh, and uh, again, those then activate my interest as a composer in different genres um, colliding. And so activating the idea of the parlor song and exploring what that sound world was, you know, then there's this kind of light, uh, ingratiating, jazzy quality to some of the songs, but um, all in a kind of safe parlor zone world. Uh, and. Uh, and then it kind of, we reflect and refract that in various moments in the yeah. cycle. And the interesting thing for me was that, um, I'm looking this up to make sure I get it right, William Cowper um, wrote a, uh, an extensive poem called The Task, and this cycle opens with a, uh, a section from The Task, which um, I found as a great quote, which I, I wrote into, in an anniversary card, because it talks about, um, let's close the shutters, let's pull the sofa around, let's make tea, um, let's, you know, let's just sit in a cozy place and, and let life happen in, within this, the halls of this room. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it really sets up the whole cycle to mm -hmm. be like, oh, here we are in this intimate space. Mm -hmm. well, you're saying that to the audience, but of course within the song that the singer is all of a sudden in this intimate place where these beautiful texts, um, some of them mildly sentimental, some of them very sentimental, <laughs> um, and Zachary's treatment is so beautiful. It rides that fine edge between, between beauty and sentiment, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it sort of opens with that, like here's an introduction to this room, this culture where you can come join me, the singer, mm -hmm. uh, and, as I explore this. And that yeah. D.H. Lawrence poem is just mm. <laughs> I, wrenching. I have to tell you just from, an, from being in the audience last night, from my perspective, um, how, just how novel it was to hear that kind of song. And uh, it was uh, a unique experience that I, I don't think I've had. I, I don't go to a lot of song recitals, mm -hmm. but I, I can't tell you that, uh, that I've had that experience of feeling like, after your introduction too, I kept thinking about, um, and maybe you could uh, recap that a little bit mm -hmm. about you know, your, your mom sitting under the piano mm -hmm. and picking at the, mm -hmm. the paint on the piano <laughs> and this whole, I, I just, I was imagining that, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as a point of you know thinking about nostalgia and memory and mm -hmm. here are these beautifully old-fashioned kind of songs and this old-fashioned way uh, I just I loved it I thought it was Thanks really so really a great just a fascinating experience and and lovely and charming and of course Tony so charming as a performer he brought us into that world Thank you. Um, but what a unique experience it provides for an audience to think about what what that might have been to mm. sit around with your friends and sing songs and mm -hmm. uh, you know yeah. that we don't live in that world anymore. That's no, that's definitely no. gone. And, uh, I, and in I think a, in a sense, I think nostalgia too as a as a theme uh, is so interesting to me in part because it's actually so taboo, right? It's it, it goes counter to the notions of modernism and yeah. of progress that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. That nostalgia is actually often viewed as a kind of um, a stain on a on a contemporary piece mm -hmm. of music. Yeah. And I love the idea of actually making Gosh. it the theme. Because it's something we all feel, and also I think nostalgia informs a lot of uh, a lot of classical musicians' approach to, to their work. Right, that we we all collectively perform a kind of uh, sense of loss of music that is now old and now uh, now um, out of fashion or not so popular. Right, so uh, that theme just really struck me. But uh, so the the introduction to the piece that I gave last night before its premiere. Um, tied in to the, the most resonant image when I read the, that D.H. Lawrence poem, Piano, which is all about him, as I said, lying under the piano and listening to his mom play, and he's looking at her feet on the pedals. Um, it made me think of my own piano growing up and uh, an experience uh, of laying under the piano while my mother was playing and seeing, uh, seeing the paint chipped away, the lacquer chipped away on the back of the pedal box. And then later, many years later, 
my mother finally telling me, oh, with, uh, yeah, I, I was the one who picked all of that off while, while my father was playing oh, songs at the piano. See, I couldn't hear that. I'm glad oh, I didn't yes. because I would, have been, I would have been a puddle on the floor. <laughs> my grandfather yeah. who sang on the radio uh, and, and then sang with his wife at the piano at home. Sure. And, yeah. and so that image really struck, just uh, really informed, I think, the tone, particularly of the way I set that song, of, of the sense of... Um, because I think uh, tied into nostalgia is so many things. It's, as I said last night, it's respect. It's, it's also appreciation for beauty, and it's also loss. And so I love the conflicted nature of that emotion, and, and I love the way that we can play with that. Uh, I mean, in this cycle, I tried to use the piano pedal, and I tried to use some effects like that to, to try to kind of uh, blur, in a way, to put Vaseline on the lens of the music, to kind mm -hmm. of blur our sense of time. Um, but uh, it was just such a different thing to try because I, and so many art songs are, are quite straightforward. This is sad, this is happy, right? Mm -hmm. But here to, well, to juggle these emotions was really interesting. Yeah, and I know I'm not supposed to be really watching the audience as I sing, but I actually <laughs> saw a couple of students with their mouth open sort of, and not, I think in awe of the music and the, and, and the, the, I don't know, the, the straightforward honesty of it. Um, especially I think I, I, this happened during Just a Weary and a View, which I think is, is, is such a charming setting of that text. Uh, and it sounds like something else, but totally fresh and totally Zachary. Just a weary and a view. The other thing I wanted to mention was um, when Zachary sent me the songs, um, the piano was one I was really looking forward to <laughs> because it's just such a such a gorgeous text and um, uh, it reminded me of one of our favorite composers, which is Benjamin Britten, um, and his mother was a singer and a pianist and a, and. Um, that image of a child sitting under the piano was so poignant for me. Mm. So now I find out it's, it's even more poignant for you because you actually, yeah. <laughs> you're not like Harry Potter in the closet. You were just under, the, <laughs> under the piano, <laughs> yeah. No glasses, though. Not yet, at uh, least. Um, <laughs> but um, mm. so I was just, it, it's, to receive a gift like that in your inbox, you know, mm. the, um, and I've had that in my life more than a few times mm. because of this process. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, and that might be a good point to pivot. We, we want to talk about New American Voices and uh, kind of wrap up uh, with that. Um, and uh, I think all of us, all three of us here, have a, have a deep appreciation and interest in you know, making, performing music of, of our time, of this time, uh, whether that's a, a nostalgic look back or whatever, but it doesn't exist without this moment and, and thinking about these things. So the possibility to reflect on all of these kinds of issues, um, to make music that's very personal, all of those things happen in, in new, new music. So, Tony, you wrote eloquently in your introduction in the program notes for the concert last night about... Um, sort of the impetus behind New American Voices and, and what it is. So I think I'll just open it up to say, uh, for, for you to talk about how this project came about. What is it? How, do, how does it come about? And, uh, you know, the kind of why and how of sure. this project. Um, well, I think I mentioned when we were talking earlier about um, the fact that singers are recreative artists, instrumentalists are recreative artists. We, we take what's on the page and we interpret it. Interpretive, yeah. Um, and growing up as a creative child, um, I mean, I did write music, and, and I, as I said, I write some poetry, but for the most part, what I do in my profession, I recreate what others write. I mean, we, we do have a certain amount of, um, of interpretation that goes on. We choose what sounds to make, where the consonants go, what colors to put on what words, and there, there's a lot of creativity in that. I don't want to you know, put that down or poo-poo it at all, but for me, I just feel like it, sometimes it's not enough. So when I was finally able to collaborate with a composer and help to choose the text and, and maybe say this, this phrase uh, doesn't suit my voice as well or I think you might get what you're looking for in a different way, I felt so immediately tied to the process. And um, it was like a spiritual awakening in a way. <laughs> um, in that, and it was just basically a feeling that I wanted to recreate for myself. And um, I stepped away from it for a few years after graduate school. Um, but a few, quite a few years later, 
um, I reconnected with the same composer, Michael Alec Rose, who I mentioned before at Vanderbilt University, and, uh, um, and um, talked about another song cycle. And that started me on, on the road, um, and it was back in, in 2012. I've always sung a lot of contemporary music, um, along with Baroque music. Um, but in 2012-13, um, he uh, began working on a song cycle, and we began collaborating on that process um, based on the poetry of Morris Manning, an amazing poet. Uh, I think he's from Kentucky. I don't want to get that wrong. Um, Bucolics, very pastoral poetry. Mm. Um, so that kind of ignited the flame again, and I thought, um, how can I help to kind of recreate that for young singers, young composers? Um, and then that, along with the sort of what I feel is the lack of um, of opportunities for young composers to learn about writing for the voice. And Libby Larson, who was just here for a few days, um, totally agreed with me. She said, yes, when, when um, you know, she thinks about where to send a composer, a young composer to learn how to write about the voice, she has to think very long and hard about where to send that student because it's just not happening everywhere. Um, and I thought this was an opportunity, uh, something like New American Voices, and I'll talk a little bit in a second about what it is, but it's, it's an opportunity to give um, composers the tools to learn how to write for the voice, um, a very practical way. Um, so how it started was um, I, um, I sponsored a competition, basically, at the university where I was at the time, and um, provided some text and said here, uh, I, and in coordination with the composition faculty, um, and said here, these are some texts, can you have your students write some songs in these texts, we'll put them together, maybe we'll choose a, a winner at the end of the year, um, we'll see what we get. And um, by, the, by the end, we had some beautiful, beautiful songs, and, and the singers who worked on them um, were, were really gratified. Um, I was really gratified getting to sing them. At that point, there were fewer students involved, because it was just basically me, my poetry, and, um, but the next year, I took that to the next step, where um, I, had, I paired up singers and composers. Um, and in those first two years, we did six or seven concerts in Miami and New York, um, one full concert of Zachary's music, um, another concert of Michael Rose's music, where he wrote a third song cycle for me, mm -hmm. so I did a whole concert of his music. Um, um, so it just led to this, further and further into this idea of how can we re recreate this experience for young, um, for young singers and composers. Um, and so then when I got a chance to write this grant, and John, you were very helpful as I started to write my grant and put my ideas together, um, I thought, how can I do this in the university, at, at the university level? Um, so my idea was three-tiered. We would start with the students. I would get nominations from the composition faculty. Um, I would get nominations from the voice faculty. We would pair those composers and singers up. Um, to sort of work through the process of it during a year of how do you go about choosing texts, how do you write for the voice, and a back and forth, a dialogue. Um, and the second layer was I, I paired up uh, voice faculty members with some of our talented faculty, not only composition faculty, but you, John, who, who also a composer, and, and Brian Grazer, who composes, and Brian Harrington, um, and Kyle Kindred, who's been very, very supportive of this process. Um, and then, because of the grant, I was able to bring in um, another composer, and uh, from outside composer, and that's where Zachary uh, Wadsworth comes in, because I enjoyed working with him, and, and we've had a very, very fruitful, and for me, very pleasurable, pleasurable experience. So that's the sort of origin story, and where we are today, and you know, this experience over the past couple of days has really just reinforced for me um, that this is a very, very worthy, um, a worthy project, and maybe Zachary, you can talk a little bit about um, coming into this, like plopping into this process at the at the end, and maybe seeing what's happened and possibly what the students might have learned from it. Zachary gave a really uh, wonderful masterclass yesterday and heard several of the students' songs, and maybe what do you think they they received from it? What was what you know? Well, I think in so many ways it, it's lovely to see, and and it's something that even I wish that I had had in my own undergraduate, but also something that I just kind of performed for myself, I guess, in my undergrad that by hanging out with singers and by you know talking, yep. listening, and and bouncing texts off of them. And this is just a more organized way of doing that, isn't it? Um, it's really it, it was so inspiring to see um, to see the collaborations yesterday, and particularly to to. Um, 
to bring the singers into that conversation as well, because I think one of the biggest things is, uh, you know, encouraging composers is so important, and getting composers the experience in in setting vocal music is so important. But also, and I think uh, this can can get lost in that conversation, inspiring young singers to work with composers and also to take this um, creative agency that you've talked about uh, and to model it for them is so important mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. like that you can make your own repertoire and, and that a lot of people have and that you should continue these relationships with composers. I think that's equally important. Um, and I, it's, I, did, I did a program sort of like this while I was in my master's studies at Yale where they, they ran a course that was for equal numbers of composers, singers, and poets. And so the uh, poet angle was just the I one additional. Yeah, and it was it was a lovely experience. And then everyone's collaborating from that moment of non-existence, right? So the poem doesn't exist yet, the song doesn't exist yet. Sort of performance. like what you did, yeah. Right, yeah. right. And I think that's, that's, a, that's an additional layer that can be really fascinating. But what I, again, what I love here is seeing singers take some control over the themes that they're singing about, um, seeing them interact with the, the composers, because it's not, you know, there are there are tough moments in these kinds of collaborations. Yes, because they weren't say, random. I, I did choose them out of a hat. Yeah. I, mean, I, get to, I get to work with you because I choose you. But yeah, it was it was interesting seeing the pairings and how they managed that, how they maneuvered that. Yeah. Well, and because this is all social, it's like we can, it's going back to our conversation earlier, it's so easy to forget that Beethoven was writing pieces for people, right? Yeah. That these were commissions, most of them. Um, And when we forget that, then we forget that there's outside creative input. Then we forget all of these steps, right, that lead to this moment of what we then think of as genius, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then I think here, what's so inspiring to see is composers rethinking, um, right? Oh, I've heard it once. Ooh, maybe I would change this or that. Or um, then a singer singer kind of... um, uh, revisiting a moment or oh well this doesn't lie quite where I might like for it to and mm-hmm. then it, starting to give them the tools to actually and and the freedom to then go to a composer and say can you rework this because I think you know when you sing Beethoven you can't go please change that um, and so it takes in, in some ways it takes real confidence and real yes, bravura to yes, do that and I have a little, you know probably you know a, a lot of that um, I work I, with I, but this is education, right? This is yeah. so well, important. And, and if I may, just from my perspective as a, a composer who, for the first, first time, uh, wrote for the singing voice, mm-hmm. uh, it was hugely instructive for me to sit down with Deborah Popham and say, okay, uh, you know, um, I, I don't have any ego about this, you know. Yep. Uh, tell me what works. You, you say, know? open your toolkit. Yeah, and show me I want to learn, you know. I mm-hmm. want to learn what, what you can do, what, what things should I avoid, you know. And I, I had sort of had some sketches and some ideas, but ma- mainly where I started from was the nuts and bolts of, okay, the range is, <laughs> I'm writing this down, you right. know. Uh, you know right. uh, she said, first, I'm a soprano. Oh, right, soprano, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, just, and of course, I looked this, the, these things up on, you know, orchestration manuals or online or whatever right so I sort of had an idea but but I came into it with the idea that I I don't know anything you know I don't have any ego about this just uh, I want to learn how do mm-hmm. I do this what are the nuts and bolts and mm-hmm. I can tell you that was hugely instructive and again um, and Zachary can affirm this but it doesn't happen a lot in the university environment I think not enough at least mm-hmm. um, so yeah we encourage the the composers to go sit in and voice lessons just mm-hmm. go actually hear them warm up hear mm-hmm. them um, make their noises, as yeah. we like mm-hmm. to say, mm-hmm. um, so that you just learn about the nuts and bolts, not only of the generic soprano voice, but also what makes that voice unique and what mm-hmm. what you can, what story can you tell with the sounds that this one singer can create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so important to get composers spending time with and even uh, with performers and even performing themselves, because I, I think an ultimate goal should be tearing down even distinctions. Because, I mean, with Caroline Shaw's Pulitzer Prize, we saw. Uh, a, a great composition award going to a great composition written by someone who at that time was even uncomfortable with the label of composer. Um, and and so I think tearing down these distinctions will only help us, right? And encouraging composers not to think themselves composers, but as members of yes. this community, as writers within this community um, is another way, I think, of demystifying mm-hmm. of th- that yeah. Yeah, well, that process. The, yeah. The lessons I learned is something you mentioned about the the quote-unquote art song, and I think mm. 
it did have an effect on some of these these composers, and I think I, I'm going to, th in the future, possibly pull that word out, or at least you know define define it for them in a mm -hmm. way that means that it can it can include pop song, it can include lots of different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. this seems like a, a good place to to wrap. Uh, so I always like to close my podcast with a simple question. It's not always a simple answer, but the the question is, how does one live and sustain a creative life and so maybe we could all you could take turns or collaboratively take mm. a stab at that i'm not ready yet <laughs> <laughs> you go <laughs> it's a great it's a great question and it's um i think something that, uh, that where the answer changes over time for everyone um i think the act of composition is as i said earlier inherently a solitary one it's work that happens in isolation no matter how you how you work that but um what what sustains me are the moments then when I interact with musicians, when the music comes to life, when an audience hears it, when I hear uh, feedback about it. Um, so I think it's nurturing that feeling of community and of one's position within it and just of being an outward looking person, of listening to music, of going to concerts. Um, I, I, that to me is what keeps me going um, in, in this world. And also then trying to think what are the stories that haven't been told. Um, because otherwise, I think it's easy to then think, well, why does it, what matters? You know, why does any of this matter? I think um, the sense of purpose then comes from the sense of uh, uh, building these relationships and also then of, of exploring new territory, whatever that means. To, yeah. to you. What about you, Tony? Well, you stole my answer. Oh, darn. No, no, <laughs> only, a, only a little bit. Um, I'm a, a big introvert, and most people might not even realize that that's the case, but um, making connections for me is sometimes not painful but difficult. So transversing the world is sometimes, it's always a challenge um, because we are we're strong beings, but we're also fragile. So I think what helps me sustain my creative life, is that basically the question, is to every day encourage myself to open myself up to make connections with people because I know that's what feeds our soul. And for me, it's a lot easier um, to stand up and express that with my singing voice um, because at, at least that point they can't you know, give me feedback and throw tomatoes or something. <laughs> um, but I feel like that ties completely into to what I'm talking about. It allows me to make a hopefully make a connection with someone without without um, revealing my complete self. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm sharing a part of my soul, but only as much as I, I am able to at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's um, a vulnerability, but, but you're, you're choosing what, what to show. Yeah, but also, I, just to go back to the making connections, I think yeah. um, partnerships and uh, relationships are, as I, at the older I get, I realize are, are, are a creative activity. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I won't say that, that music is the only thing that feeds my soul, but connecting with people, um, as hard as it is sometimes, um, I just make myself do it, and, and especially with those who I'm really close to. And mm -hmm. that's why, not to bring it back to composers and stuff, it's so, so great to find a like-minded person like Zachary um, and like you, John, to just to sit and talk about things like this and feel, feel we're connected. Yeah, you know? yeah, great. Thank you both so much for taking the time to chat, and uh, this was wonderful. Thank Thanks you. So yeah, much. thank you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening. <laughs>